Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It was exactly 70 years ago that the Queen of England was crowned. And an anniversary like that deserves a party, right? Especially when the queen is 96, and this is likely her last decade wearing the crown. Enter the Platinum Royal Jubilee. This weekend, Britain has a four-day bank holiday with two days off work to celebrate. So while our colleagues in the UK enjoy corgi-themed tea parties and drag queen bingos and brunches, those are all actually happening. We're bringing you a session we recorded recently at the US FT Weekend Festival. It's about what's next for the Windsors. And it's between three heavy hitters. Joe Ellison, the editor of How to Spend It, which is recently renamed HTSI. Simon Shama, the great historian, documentarian, and writer. And Tina Brown, former editor of The New Yorker, matriarch of the media world, and author of the recently published book, The Palace Papers. Please enjoy... The conversation begins with Joe. Tina, you've just written a fabulous book. It's a brilliant overview of the last 25 years, but also preceding that sort of several decades worth of like good royal juice. Um, what is the state of health of the Windsors as you see it today? I think it's perilous because all the kind of mayhem and scandals and difficulties uh, that have happened in the last 25 years were always going to be all right, because at the center of it all was this calm, composed, kind of preternaturally judicious monarch, you know, Elizabeth II, and keeping calm and carrying on. And as, while she was there to sort of pull it all together, represent sense and sanity, everything in the end, we all knew was going to be all right. The problem is that a lot of the mayhem of the last few years is happening at a time when the queen is very frail. And we're looking at her twilight years. And so there is much more, I think, now a sense of can it, can it go on in quite the way that it has. And when we say the way that it is, um, Simon, perhaps you can kind of give us a sort of encapsulation of what the, what the Windsor family, what the royal family has represented for Britain and the rest of the world. I, I, the only thing I'd add to what Tina says, and I share the view about perilousness, is that actually it's very difficult to think of a viable alternative. So... Uh, if, if you start from the position as, you know, a kind of boring professor of history like me does, rather than from the inside of the family and say and assume that cultures and societies and powers, um, even or maybe especially in the digital era, need an identity focus. They need something to personify other than a football team or something, um, the community to which they belong you're right on the spot about saying, well, what, what can that be, actually? And in a particular case of Britain that's lost its moorings with Europe um, and dream on about having a special relationship with the United States, it's, it's a profound historical question. 
And I'm not saying it will be answered by the monarchy, but, you know, give us an alternative. That That's the issue. The issue then, I very briefly, the answer to your very big question is, what has the House of Windsor been meant? Uh, it's meant exactly a kind of sense of... Um, a, 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 a kind of way of being in a country um, which has lost its empire, you know, um, which which is contracting and contracting and contracting, but still in some sense has, um, it, it, it has a kind of place in the flow of historical time and it's embodied in a person who seemed to be, and who was, I mean, a decent person, um, a public person. And the trouble with when you run an institution as a family, as a royal family, the risks are enormous. It might be like everybody, everybody's horribly dysfunctional family. figurehead that's got a very strong kind of thematic responsibility. It represents the crown. But obviously within that, there's this incredible family human drama and a cast of characters that you capture in all different kind of like guises. And it's a very much, it's a very easy take to say heroes and villains. Like, do we love, is it like boo hiss Camilla? Is it boo hiss Charles? Is Harry good? Is he bad? Who did you love and who did you hate? Well, you know... The funny thing is I came to love all of these characters. Oh, of course No, I did. I fell in love with them all, particularly, actually, Camilla and also the Queen, who I finally came around to finding just very funny. I mean, she has (laughs) a very astringent sense of humour, which uh, makes it much more interesting somehow that backstage that she's got this sharp, sharp, sort of slightly Maggie Smith put-downs that she comes on. One of my my favourite was uh, when discussing the golden jubilee, one of her kind of courtier sort of advisors was trying to come up with something that might make her relatable, like going for a ride on the London Eye, which is that big, you know, carousel. And there was pause and the Queen just said, I'm not a tourist. (laughs) (laughs) End of it, you know. She's so authentic. Um, And the Queen also just has this natural temperament, which is just so sublimely suited to the role that she's in. And she's so good at being inscrutable which ultimately has proved a great weapon for her because no one to this day knows what the Queen thinks about anything. Yeah. I mean, during Brexit, we don't know what she thought. We have absolutely no, don't know how she thought. But what we do know is, is that she admires stoicism. She admires um, people who, you know, duty. She admires people who, 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 you know, get on with things and don't whine. I mean, all of these wonderfully sort of British, uh, you know, uh, things, which is why she now really loves Camilla. And she really does love Camilla now because Camilla is one another person who has shown how she can play the long game. She has never actually spoken at all in public about her relationship with Charles anywhere. Yeah. She's never been indiscreet. Um, so discretion is a huge Discretion value, is huge. As it is with Kate Middleton. Absolutely, as it is with Kate Middleton. But also, you know, Camilla has been very stoic. I mean, you know, she actually has put up with a tremendous amount and I have gone into this in detail in the book of what she really did go through to end up in the position that she has. And um, that I, I found her a very uh, sympathetic character. Interesting, though, that the humanising influence in the, in the Windsor family in the last 25 years has tended to come from commoners, should we say, or at least um, from, you know, strong middle class values. And actually, a lot of the time, a lot of the accounts that you talk about, they seem quite banal and bourgeois. I used to say bourgeois a lot. Like they're not 
a, a family necessarily of like great riches and extravagances, which is sort of counter to what you might assume of like a kind of, you know, a royal family. Um, is that great modernizing influence, the fact that they have kind of actually allowed for more class sort of in like, what was the word? Where they've allowed it to infiltrate, even though they've sort of like maintained this incredibly strong aristocratic kind of like order, Simon. Well, I think, no, I think actually one of the stories, you know, it's particularly strong in Tina's book about Diana, but um, one, one of the stories, the Spencers were aristocrats in, in a way in which the Windsors are not. Um, they, what, you know, there are plenty of horses in the royal family and dogs and gardening and so on. But dogs and gardening are absolutely part of the epic of British middle class life, really. And as Tina says, the sense of absolutely being repelled by any kind of hint of bling or wearing your heart on a sleeve, that kind of thing. But, you, you know, if you go to the garden party, you see people going into the garden party in Buckingham Palace. For those of you, you know, happens in the late spring through the summer. It's been People from all over the country, nurses, matrons, school teachers, you know, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge middle class occasion. Um, and, um, you know, we, we were talking earlier about whether or not the Queen is physically up to doing it because it's quite, you know, it's every two or three weeks or something, actually. So, is that but, what Meghan misinterpreted then, do you think? Is this yes. the big mistake? And how? Yes. Yeah, Meghan really did um, buy into the idea of palaces, castles. Yes. Global tours, crowds, uh, uh, mega celebrity. Yeah. Uh, and there's nothing more different from celebrity than the royal family, frankly. It's, it, you know, when, when, when Meghan said on, on Oprah, uh, well, I thought I got this. I thought that I could handle it. I mean, I knew celebrities in Hollywood. It's like, <laughs> which point one just thought, you know, nothing could be more different than celebrities in Hollywood than the sort of tradition-based, you know, frugal, you know, but it uh, sounds like a ghastly existence for the most part. You can't say anything, you can't go anywhere, and you can't do anything apart from <laughs> talk to dogs and pet horses. It's I think, like I think it's, I think it's, I think that that marrying into the royal family is a bit like the sort of secular version of taking the veil. I don't think that it is uh, something to be taken on lightly because well, like the auditioning process, like Cressida Bonus, sort of was like absolutely not going to have a, um, you know, Harry. Road tested quite a few girlfriends and they ran from the job. They, they ran. absolutely weren't going to take They them. ran because I think the combination of intense scrutiny now, which is, you know, 24-7, with the sort of constraints, you know, of everything that you're allowed to do and not to do, and the fact that really all of this kind of uh, excitement about being royal is sort of off, off distance. I mean... Megan was being offered all of this wonderful kind of goodies, essentially, of celebrity life, which couldn't say yes to any of them. Yeah. Which is why, you know, she wanted out, really, because, you know, to have all this celebrity fame but not actually be able to kind of, uh, you know, deploy it in the service of anything you wanted to do is actually something I think most people would find very difficult. And then paradoxically, you've got Harry, who was kind of in, uh, this kind of terribly lost, rudderless, adolescent boy who we all sort of took into our bosom and, you know, loved as a kind of the, the lost son of the Windsors, who went into the army and actually found himself and kind of found a family and found a role in life and has now had to kind of like abscond from that and gone out to Montecito. You kind of wonder what's going on with Harry now. Who wants to... He wants to sing for Harry. Do we, do, we, do we feel for him? Do we think he's rehabilitated? I, I think he's going to be profoundly unhappy in a completely different way <laughs> from the other serial unhappinesses. It's not, it's not, he's not built for late night television over and over again or, you know, 
and the what is it Archie Well? I mean, it's it's a, a classic moment of of you know the fates really chuckling and snipping the ribbon. That um, or this was you know the the production the great production number was going to be for Netflix, at which point Netflix then tanked and cut a huge number of programs it was supposed to put on. So I just, it's, uh, it, it doesn't quite fit, Harry. I think I'm interested as both of you being um, British people living in America, and I think what Harry and Meghan seem to represent to a lot of Americans, certainly at the time, was that it illustrated how much of an anachronism the kind of like Windsor family were, that they weren't modernised, that they, that they were racist, that they just didn't understand the kind of like, you know, the human needs that a woman walking into that sort of atmosphere would be. Do you think that people, and I mean, as, as people who continue to comment on, on the royal family in America, do you think that's something that has changed in terms of the perception and opinion of the royal family from abroad? Or do you think that it's, has, have Meghan and Harry helped the Windsors or hindered them? I was struck by, there is a sense in the American approach to the royal family is that we are a republic, you know, um, and the British monarchy is, after all, ridiculous and unfit for purpose in right. the modern era. But there are the viewing figures for Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah. As well. And the crowd. And, yeah, and all and upstairs, downstairs. So, so there is a it's very... It's a sort of guilty pleasure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think a sort of fascination, actually. And, you know, you saw it in... Um, you know, Donald Trump's absolutely craving, above all things, to have his state dinner and his time with the Queen. On the one hand, he could have said, well, Queen, you mean, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm the real thing, actually. On the other hand, this sort of, you know, damply desperate need, actually, to receive a kind of royal unction. So now we're at a point where... God forbid we can imagine a near future in which there might not be a Queen Elizabeth. Um, what is Charles going to be like as a king and what kind of, you know, dominion will he have? Okay, that's very much something for Tina to talk about. All I'll say is that, um, it, you know, Charles, Charles's obsession for many decades has been environmentalism and... Um, uh, you know that, and that's um, <laughs> Tina describes um, the despair of his handlers as saying, "Oh well, everyone sees him as simply talking to plants," you know, <laughs> and as a sort of mad nut cutlet ex vegetarian. He's not vegetarian, but eccentricity. But that, of course, turns out to be one of the absolutely existential crises of this deeply, elementally terrifying period we're living through. So you look at the man, at Charles, and you look at the zeitgeist, the moment, and they actually have a kind of extraordinary serendipitous convergence, which is not to say, as a huge amount of evidence, that really Charles has a habit of saying the wrong thing and putting his foot in it, and... Um, and, and he, the, the convergence can turn into a, mix my metaphors, into a booby trap, you know. But it's not that it's bound to be hopeless. I mean, my own feeling <laughs> for what it's worth about prediction about when the Queen dies is that there'll be an enormous kind of outpouring of communal sorrow, really, which, which will really be a moment of, you know, 
British national togetherness, I think, actually. And I, I actually think <clears throat> that in that moment of national togetherness, there may be a rallying to Charles, as a matter of fact. Yes. Um, because, uh, as you say, his passions and interests happen to dovetail right now with the zeitgeist. But if ever there was a time for him to become king, this is the best time for him to become king. And also, as a transitional monarch, he could become a very effective sort of bridge to William. Um, right. You know, it's popular to say, oh, why don't they skip Charles and have William? I think it would be very difficult for William to follow the Queen. I don't think that he's got, uh, he's not experienced well, enough. He's a caretaker king then, poor Well, but you can be, it's not so much a caretaker king. He's got a lot of modernising to do before William takes over. And if he can see his role as that, I think it will be good. I also think <clears throat> that Charles... Uh, one thing the monarchy does have is the power to convene. I mean, there aren't many powers left for the monarchy, but one of its powers is the powers to convene. As Simon said, you know, look how Trump was slavering to be asked, you know, to Buckingham Palace. Most people, if they get a call saying this is Buckingham Palace on the phone, they just drop their thoughts and say, what date? You know, they want to be there. And Charles will use that position, I think, to convene a lot around these topics of, of climate change, environment, culture, all of his passions. Plus, he's authentic. And one thing we've seen yeah. with the Queen that has made her so beloved is the fact people know this woman, they know who she is, they believe her. Charles, for all of his kind of dithering and his, oh, just my luck, and you know, all this, the fact is... Rather extraordinarily extravagant tastes. Well, his extravagant tastes, all of it. But he, we know who Charles is. Yeah. Um, he's never been a, a phony about anything. And people can relate to that, I think. I think they know that he's a decent person. And I think they know that he cares tremendously, you know, about the philanthropies he's done and so on. So I think he might find, you know, a different way to be loved, let's put it that way. He's never going to have, obviously, what the Queen has with all these concentric rings of history and, and the sense that, you know, she represents the nation 70 years. He's not going to have that. But I think that he will uh, find another way to somehow win the respect of the country, I do. Obviously, we've seen with the responsibility shifting over, where we've got Andrew out of the picture. We've got like various other people not going to be on the balcony, going to be on the balcony. Who's going to be there for the Jubilee? Who's not going to be there? Um, it's a really slim down monarchy now, um, sort of partly by design because Charles wanted it like that and also partly by kind of self-immolation. But um, can those, um, can, can, can Kate and William sort of bring that same, like have they got enough in them to kind of carry that on their shoulders? It's a... It's a big responsibility for a very private couple. <laughs> I think it's a nightmare for them. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they really are like working like dogs right now to keep up <laughs> the family, you know, business. Uh, I think, you know, Prince Edward and Sophie have been kind of, you know, upgraded and suddenly they're everywhere. I think it is a bit, it is a bit slim line at the moment. I have to say it really is. Uh and I, want ads are going to be yeah, in there. <laughs> want ads. I, you know, be careful what you wish for, Prince Charles, because your slimmed yeah. down monarchy is looking, you know, positively anorexic these days. I want to ask you also, in terms of the, where we are now, have we crept out from under the shadow of Diana or is she still the kind of, I want to say elephant in the room, it's not probably appropriate, but is she's, she's still this kind of extraordinary presence, has, a, has everyone still over, like hanging over. Um, is, is there a way out of that, or is that always going to be part of the... No, I wouldn't hear what Tina says about that. My impression is that it is brother over, actually. Uh, I may be wrong about that, that, uh, that I think that, that, that a lot of focus about the psychodrama of Diana 
is really, um, it's the next bit on in the Shakespeare, you know, um, uh, trilogy. It, it, it's what's reflected through William and through Harry. Um, Except and the fate we're of about their to get a new Netflix series with of the Crown, where they've rolled yeah, out right. two more extra series just yeah, to kind of like capitalise right. on this. One. I did. I may be under the influence of the film Spencer, which I thought was one of the worst films ever <laughs> made <laughs> in the history of movie making. Actually, yeah. So it may not be that the world or Britain is over Diana, but I definitely am. You know. Yeah. Um, for Charles, it's a living nightmare, the, the Diana shade, because every time he's sort of extricated himself, he thinks from it, uh, something else will come at him. And there's a great deal of trepidation about the next series of The Crown, about whether once again uh, Charles is going to be cast as, you know, the villain of the piece and will it be another hagiography of Diana as, uh, you know, as, as, as a great victim, etc. And there is a lot of anxiety about that. But of course, as, as, as Simon said, you know, the real shade of Diana is now being lived out through Harry. Yeah. Harry's the legacy. And he's got a book coming out. And Harry has a book coming out. And that book is one of their biggest anxieties right now in the House of Windsor. It's hanging over them a sort of Damocles because they don't know what's in this book. And, uh, you know, if, if it's another, uh, if it's all about, you know, how Camilla stole uh you know, Charles away from his mother, that's just not good for Camilla because for the last 20 years, you know, she's now been his wife longer than Diana was. She's really not put a foot wrong. She's been so supportive, such a kind of team player. And they, but it's still fragile, you know, and there's a whole new generation uh, that really doesn't know the backstory, et cetera. And now if this comes at them and once again, she's cast as a villain, I think it's going to be very hard. So... I'm getting the sense then that the kind of general state of play is incredibly fragile. But I mean, have there been, how many moments have there been like this historically, Simon? I mean, is it always in a state of sort of perilous danger? Oh, very often. And, I mean, and I, just... I think, remember, there was a, a much stronger Republican movement in Britain than there is now when the Queen was closeted endlessly, you know, with the plaster cast of Albert's hand on the pillow at Osborne in the Isle of Wight and she refused to be seen. Um, the wonderful, uh, wonderful movie um, um, of um, it's called Mr. Mr. Brown, Mrs. Yeah. Brown. Steve, Steve yeah. Frears' movie. Yeah, exactly. Steve Frears' movie had it absolutely right about the kind of self-indulgent nature of the endlessly perpetual grief and how Disraeli got her out of that. So that was a really, with Charles Dilk, was an extremely popular Republican Politi radical politician in Britain. Um, it was a terrible problem in the reign of George IV, really. It was just a horrifically self-indulgent, vain, idiotic, bloated, enormous, awful person, really. Um, and um, so I think it has, you know, it, it's part of the story. The, the problem has always been really, and it started with George III, but became really very important when photography starts. In, and um, Albert is quite a keen, you're actually asking for trouble and that trouble goes on, but it so far hasn't sunk the monarchy, but there's no saying it might not. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we talk about pigs with Chief Features writer Henry Matz. We have this preconceived notion of pigs being dirty and lazy, but that's honestly due to how we treat them. And new neuroscientific research is turning those assumptions inside out. 
We also talk with architecture critic Edwin Hethcote about the new phenomenon that is New York skinny scrapers. They're these unfathomably thin and tall skyscrapers that are built exclusively for the most elite. If you have a moment, I would love if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with a few of your friends that you think may like it. If you like the show, that is a really helpful way to support us. Also, please keep in touch. Tell me all of your cultural interests at the moment. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can see behind-the-scenes podcast content on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital subscription and a really great deal on FT Weekend in print. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. Our sibling podcast, Payne's Politics, is also looking at The Crown this week with an episode on how British society has changed during the Queen's reign. It's a conversation between the host Sebastian Payne, political editor George Parker, economics editor Chris Giles, and the great columnist Sarah O'Connor. You should definitely check it out. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Samantha Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, and Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. This week, we also want to give a special shout out to Persis Love, who is normally a producer on another excellent FT podcast, Money Clinic. Persis basically masterminded last week's piece on the stolen cookbook, and she deserves all the credit we forgot to give her. So Persis, thank you. And on that note, please take care and we will find each other again next week.